church and uh, yes, this way, over through here. And any uh, third through fifth graders who'd like to uh, be involved in the Christmas uh, number can go this way too if you'd like to come and sing. So anyone kindergarten to third, fifth grade actually is welcome. With the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, it's on page 720. I'll tell you, after baptism, testimony Sunday, it feels like after you eat Thanksgiving meal, you're just like... And then, like, I couldn't have dessert. Well, this text... Is dessert. This is good stuff here in Isaiah 44. We're going to be studying Isaiah 44. You know, I, I do love Baptism Testimony Sundays. They, uh, they inspire. They are encouraging. But you know, another thing that hearing other people give testimonies of faith does is it reminds me never to write anybody off. You know, my temptation is to kind of put people into boxes. And, you know, there's uh, kind of prospects and suspects. You know, there's some people who I'm like, you know, that guy, he'll be open to the faith. He'd be open to Christ. You know, I, I bet, you know, he'd listen. And I'll put some energy into him. But that person, oh, they're hostile. They're closed. I mean, look, look at the problems they have. You can't even bring up God around them and they just get all edgy. So, well, you know, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to spend my time over here on this person. I kind of write people off. Kind of like in the election, they had those maps, the red and blue states. And even before we voted, they sort of have like, well, you know, don't worry about that state. That state's red and that state's blue. And, and so we kind of, you know, put these states in boxes and one candidate won't campaign here or one of the other candidate won't campaign there because, you know, what's the point? And, and I think I have a tendency to do that with people when it comes to faith issues and, and to think, well, you know, that, that guy is too far gone. But this one may be, and, but, you know, this is not how God looks at it. God can change anybody. God can save anybody. God can reach out to anybody. And so I, I can't write people off. Case in point is the people of Israel in Isaiah's day. Here in Isaiah chapter 44 on page 720 in your pew Bibles. Um, Isaiah, uh, uh, Israel in Isaiah's day. If, if any people should have just been written off and punted, these people. These people, man, they were so uh, disobedient to God. Uh, look at just, uh, go back to chapter 43 and we'll start at verse 22 and I won't comment. I'm just going to read through this quickly. And I want you to get a mental picture of the, the spiritual uh, condition of these people in Isaiah's time. This was the, the crowd that Isaiah was trying to talk to. It says in verse 22 about Israel, Yet you have not called upon me, O Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not brought any fragrant calamus for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins, and wearied me with your offenses. You, know, you haven't worshipped me, you haven't prayed to me, you haven't sought me. All you've done is just pile up your sins in my face. Verse 26, Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. You know, Try to prove to me, God says, that you're good people. You're not. I mean, maybe relative to other people, but not relative to me, God says. You haven't followed me. You haven't sought me. You haven't obeyed my laws. 
And look, this goes back for years, verse 27. Your first father sinned, your spokesman rebelled against me. So you go way back in Israel's history, and this is a generational pattern. You guys are following in the footsteps. And so God says, for hundreds of years, I've been putting up with your sin. God did everything for Israel. Everything. He brought them out of Egypt. He gave them the promised land on a silver platter. He gave them his laws. He gave them King David. He put his own presence right there in Israel. And you know, what thanks does God get for all this? Israel responds with sin, with rebellion, with... Um, when they do religion, it's very superficial. It's, you know, it's, it's not deep. It's not heartfelt. Uh, they worship idols. You look at Israel and it's just like, man, don't you guys get it? But they constantly turn away from God, turn away from God, turn away from God. And if anyone deserved to be written off, it should have been this people. And so God says, that's it, I'm going to bring judgment in verse 28. So I will disgrace the dignitaries of your temple, and I will consign Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. And that's in fact what God did. About a hundred years after Isaiah ministered, in 587 B.C., that was the date, the Babylonian army rolled into Jerusalem, knocked down the walls, razed the city, burned down the temple, killed off most of the people. There were a few survivors, and, and those survivors got rounded up and taken as exiles way back to Babylon. I mean, if, if ever there was a people that had sinned and fallen on their face and were broken and judged, it was the people of Israel. They, they were kind of like, at that point, they were like a, a guy in a maximum security prison serving multiple life sentences without hope of parole. That's where they were. And, you know, what do you do with a guy like that? Well, you write him off. Like, you know, forget about that. If I'm going to spend my time worrying about someone's spiritual condition, it's not going to be that guy. If, you know, he's just, forget it. I'm going to work on some other people. And, and if anyone deserved to be written off at that point, it would have been Israel. That's what makes chapter 44, verses 1 to 5, which is our passage I want to study with you, that's what makes it so astounding. So look at chapter 44, verse 1, the very next verse. But now, listen, O Jacob, my servant. What? What did you call them? My servant. Servants obey their master. I think you're confused here, God. This isn't a servant. Israel, whom I have chosen. You chose them? I mean, whoa, whoa, whoa. These are the people in the maximum security wing who, you know, forget about them. You chose them? It, gets, it even gets better. Look at verse 2. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, who I have chosen. Now, that's funny. He, he changes the name of Israel to Jeshurun. What is Jeshurun? Well, I, I didn't know either. I looked it up, and I found out it's a, a hypocrisy. I learned a new word this week, and so I'm trying to use it a lot. Uh, hypoc- uh, hypocrisy is a nickname. I don't know why they can't just say nickname, but they say hypocrisy. It's like, it's like kind of like God is grabbing Israel by the cheeks and going, my little Jeshurun. You know, that's kind of, the, you know, it's like you do with your kids. It, it's a sweet little pet nickname. So God is talking to this rebellious, sinful people like, you know, what? what are you doing? And as if that's not weird enough, the translation of the word Jeshurun most likely means upright one. So God is talking to Israel going, my little upright one. Like, are you talking about the same Israel you're just, you know, lambasting in verses chapter 43, verses 22 and following? That same Israel? And so we have this huge disconnect here. We have Israel as they really are, God's people, sinful, broken, disobedient, deserving to be written off. And then you have God saying, 
You're my servant, my chosen one, my upright one, my little Jeshurun. You know, and it's, it's like, how do you get from here to there? I mean, to go from there to there, it would take a miracle, wouldn't it? Precisely. Precisely. It takes a miracle. To come to faith in Christ, to turn to God from darkness, it takes a miracle. We can't do that. We don't have that in ourselves. If I were just to go based on my own steam, I would always stay in the dark. I would always stay in sin. And the fact that I'm a Christian today is not any testament to me. It's a testament to the miraculous power of God that He took me and did something in me and made me something different. So what you saw up here in these, these baptisms, same story. So what is the miracle? Well, it's in verse 3. Here's what God's going to do to get him from Israel the sinful to Israel the upright. Verse 3, he says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Obviously, there's a little bit of imagery here. I don't think the prophecy is about a literal irrigation project that God's going to do. He's talking about what he's going to do for the people. The dry ground, the desert, is Israel and its descendants. It's people. It's us. It's, it's our hearts. It's our dead, dry, arid hearts. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a desert. You, you know, no, there's nothing in the desert. It's dead. It's, it's just it's, it's dry. You can't grow a maple tree in the desert. You can't you know, grow cattails in the desert. It's a dry, arid, lifeless place. And that's the way our spiritual condition is apart from Christ. We're spiritually dead in our sins. But, God says, I'm going to pour out water. And the water is the Holy Spirit. And so through the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God's going to change the spiritual topography, the spiritual climate of His people. And what's, it, what's going to happen? Verse 4. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar stream trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand the Lord's and will take the name Israel. So God is going to do some outpouring of his Holy Spirit and as a result it's going to be like grass in the desert. Boing, 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 boing. And one by one all over the place these little blades of grass are going to start popping up and instead of unbelief people are going to be standing up saying, I believe. And instead of sin, people are going to stand up saying, I want to live righteously. And instead of um, hostility toward God, there's going to be openness and humility before God. There's going to be this miraculous transformation as boing, 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 faith just springs up all over. The spiritual desert is going to become a, a rainforest of faith. That's what's going to happen. And God's going to transform it by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This promise of the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a theme uh, throughout the prophets. In fact, if you want to look at your sermon notes, I'm not going to read through these. But uh, just take some time and, and read over these Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, there's others. They talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the future on God's uh, people and the transformation that it will bring about, that it will transform them spiritually. That the people that we should write off, God says, no, 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 I'm going to do a miracle. And I'm going to transform them from death to life and, and pour them out on the, the dry ground. So when did this take place? When did the outpouring of the Holy Spirit happen? During the day of Pentecost, right? Look over at uh, the New Testament book of Acts. I want to read about when this prophecy began to be fulfilled. It's in the New Testament book of Acts. If you look on page 1078 in your pew Bibles, you'll find it there. Acts chapter 2. 
So now we fast forward about 700 years from Isaiah's day to the time of Jesus Christ. And we come to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is actually volume two of a two-volume work. Volume one is Luke. It was written by Luke. And Luke also wrote Acts. So this is kind of the sequel book to the bestseller Act to Luke. He he wrote Acts. And uh, this tells the story of the church. The book of Luke tells the story of Jesus. And the book of Acts tells the story of the church that came from him. And so we pick up the story. Jesus has been crucified, buried, raised. He ascended to heaven. And, and 50 days after he was crucified comes the day of Pentecost in the Jewish festival. So this is very soon after Jesus was crucified, buried, raised, and went back to heaven. And this is what happened. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, it was a Jewish festival, they were all together in one place. All the Christians were hanging out together having a little prayer meeting. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, its other languages, as the Holy Spirit enabled them. And so that suddenly all these people are having a prayer meeting and then whoo, and the Holy Spirit comes and they're, they're suddenly praising God and they're rejoicing and they're speaking in languages that they don't know. So they, they pour out into the streets and they're doing the same thing and everyone's hearing different languages being spoken but they can hear their own language and all these people are you know, singing and dancing. It's this kind of this uproarious thing and, and it causes a big stir. Everyone gathers around like, what's going on here? Are these people drunk? You know, have they been partying at, you know, this early in the morning? And so uh, Peter explains to the crowd what happened. If you look at verse 14, it says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, that is, the eleven disciples, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And here we have an outpouring of the Holy Spirit prophecy. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And skip down to verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the prophecy about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes just after Jesus goes back to heaven. And now uh, what Peter does is, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he launches into a sermon. He just kicks into a sermon, and he starts preaching about Jesus. It's a pretty pointed sermon. It kind of goes like this. Hey, you guys remember Jesus? Remember that guy you crucified 50 days ago? Well, guess what? He's alive, and he went back to heaven. And the Holy Spirit that you see now, he's poured out on us. So, you know, that same guy you crucified is actually the Messiah. And, and he was crucified, buried, he was raised. You can go see his tomb. I'm sure you have already. You've checked it out. It's empty. It's right there in Jerusalem. You can see it for yourselves. And now he's gone back to heaven, and if you look at verse 33, he's poured out the Holy Spirit, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. So this Holy Spirit weird thing that you're seeing taking place is the evidence that Jesus has been raised and is truly the Christ and has poured out his Holy Spirit. Look what it does to the crowd. Look at verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
Now, why were they cut to the heart? What, what was it about that just happened that makes 3,000 people and thousands of people, as we'll see, suddenly go, oh, I, I, have to, I have to listen to what you're saying. Was it that Peter was a, an orator? Was he a spellbinding speaker who was well-trained in the art of hypnotizing and mesmerizing large crowds? I mean, no, Peter was a blue-collar guy. He's a fisherman, you know? It's like, go down to the docks, pick some guy at the docks to preach a sermon. That's the kind of sermon you're going to get, right? He just stands up, he just says it like it is, and hey, this is Jesus, and you crucified him, and now he's the Messiah, so deal with it. That kind of a sermon. And suddenly, they're all cut to the heart. Why was this crowd cut to the heart? Because the Holy Spirit had been poured out. God, for centuries, had been sending prophets and they kept rejecting the prophets. And now God sends a little fisherman. And now people are coming to Christ. What's the difference? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Where there used to be a desert, there's now all this faith popping up like little boop, 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 blades of grass. And uh, so, so look at what ver- Peter says in verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. See the pairing of baptism with repentance. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, your children, and for all those who are far off. Remember that part. For all who the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And get this, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. When's the last time you heard of 3,000 people en masse converting? It's amazing. It's amazing. 3,000. So the church went from a small, tiny family house church to a megachurch in one day. First megachurch in the Bible, day of Pentecost. Poof, just add water, you know, figuratively. <laughs> the Holy Spirit. And poof, instant megachurch. And there's all these people. And suddenly, 3,000 people calling on the name of Christ. And it didn't stop there. It just continued to grow. And you have to ask, what was it? Why did all these people come to Christ? It was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Where there used to be a spiritual desert, there's now a rainforest of faith. And all over, regular people popping up. I belong to the Lord. I turn to Christ. I'll receive Christ. Yes, let me be baptized. Boop, 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 boop. And it's, it's lush all of a sudden. There's faith in Christ everywhere. And the good news is that that same outpouring of the Spirit that began then hasn't stopped. That it was poured out and it's like rivers began running. And that's what the book of Acts is. The book of Acts is kind of the story of the ripple effect of the Holy Spirit's being poured out. And the rivers run to the Samaritans and the rivers even run to the Gentiles. And can you believe the river has even flowed to the South Shore of Boston? That's how powerful, that's how much Holy Spirit was dumped out. But even here in the South Shore of Boston, God is working. That's what you heard in these testimonies. These are people popping up, telling stories about how God had changed their life and how they had come to faith in Christ. These people are just people like you. People like me. They're just regular people living their life. Sinful people who don't deserve salvation, who deserve to be written off. And one by one, God is touching them with His Holy Spirit and they're changed, and now they're standing up in front of a bunch of strangers telling them how much they love Jesus. What's that all about? Did we brainwash them? You know, is this a cult? Did we, like, mess with their minds? I mean, no. Most of these people are new to the church. They haven't been here very long. God brainwashed them in in a good way. He washed their brains of sin. He washed their hearts of sin and transformed them and made them into new people. 
And that's the hope that, that Christ offers, is that anyone here can know Christ, can have their sins forgiven. It doesn't matter what your background is. doesn't matter where you've been. Maybe you have this track record in your life, and it's like, whew, if people knew my track record, they would never, you know, they would kick me right out of this church. No, we wouldn't. The point is, your track record is our track record. It's sin. But Jesus can wash away our sins and He can change our hearts. And we can become a different person. You begin a different life when Christ comes into your heart. And it's amazing. And as I say to people, when you become a Christian, you know, buckle up. Because that's when it starts. And God takes you and does things in your life that you could never have imagined. I love Richard's testimony about it. You know, if you would have told me five years ago I was praying with a bunch of carpenters before my job, I would have told you you were crazy. But that's what God does. He, he takes you from one place and does a miracle and brings you to another place. Come to Christ. Just call on Him. Like that little girl said, go home at night and just ask Christ to come into your life and forgive you. It's so simple. Uh, the other thing this teaches me is that we need to keep praying for people we know who don't know Jesus and not write people off. Who do you know who you've written off? Pull their picture up, put the face up in front of your mind. Do you see them? Who have you written off? Okay, now start praying for them. From now till Christmas, every day, make, make a pledge. Pray for that person, that person that you have written off. Uh, just out of faith, as a way of affirming to God, God, whatever you decide to do is your business, but I believe that you can, and so as a way of glorifying you, I'm going to pray for that person from now till Christmas. And do it every day. And just see what God can do. Because we write people off, but God can change and touch anybody. And what about the bigger picture? What about the South Shore? What about Boston? What about Massachusetts? You know, people, uh, the rest of the country, I don't know if we're aware of this, but the rest of the country has kind of written Massachusetts off. You know, I, I think we forget that. Because we're here and it seems normal to us the way this state is. And we get used to it. But you, you go other places around the country and even, you know, more, more liberal, open-minded, progressive states. And, you know, Massachusetts, kind of people roll their eyes at this state. Like, you know, what is going on in Massachusetts out there? It's, it's kind of a, a, a laughingstock sort of thing around the country. I mean, I hate to say it, I hate to break our bubble, but that's the way it is. I mean, case in point, in this last election, 11 states passed state amendments to their constitution defining marriages between male and female. And those amendments were passed with overwhelming majorities. And people came out in droves to say, yeah, we've got to make sure. And you can't tell me that part of the thinking wasn't, we don't want to go the way Massachusetts went. You know? There's something strange about this state. And, uh, and, and I'm not talking politics. I'm not talking de Democrat versus Republican. That's not the issue. It's a spiritual condition. There's a spiritual atmosphere in our state that it's kind of like a desert. And, and I've tried to figure out, you know, what is the spiritual climate around here? And as best I can tell, I mean, this is just kind of Jeremyology, so take it for what it's worth. But um, I, I think it's a combination of at least three major factors. One factor contributing to the spiritual climate here is secularism. I think that's a pervasive sort of worldview around here. The second is what I would call uh, intellectualism, uh, or maybe pseudo-intellectualism. I mean, we kind of think we're smarter than other people. Definitely smarter than Southerners, uh, but smarter than lots of people. Come on, right? Isn't that the, the attitude? It's just kind of implicit. It, it's as if, you know, well, we have more colleges, so somehow osmotically that makes us smart or something. And the third factor that contributes to our spiritual condition is what I would call nominalism. 
Nominalism, what, what I mean by that is nominal Christianity. Like people have religious behaviors. They do go to church, Christmas, Easter. But, but like was said in some of those testimonies, it's very surface, it's very social. And it doesn't... When, when people in Massachusetts talk about religion, they talk about the institutions. They talk about how much they dislike this or hate that. But when we talk about religion in Massachusetts, we don't talk about being cut to the heart and having deep faith and personal love for God. That's not the way our religious discussions go. And as a result of that, there's this kind of spiritual atmosphere in which we live, and it's kind of a desert here. And the rest of the country, I think even Christians around the country have written Massachusetts off. Which is exactly why I'm so thankful that I'm called to be a preacher here. I love it. Right? Because... When the Holy Spirit is poured out on Massachusetts, I want to be at ground zero. I don't want to be in Alabama reading about it in Christianity Today. I want to be here. I, I want to feel the rain come down. I want to see the new life spring up. I want to be on the front lines. I want to be in the desert praying and laboring for God to do something great. Because if He can do it here, you know, He can do it anywhere. That, that's what I'm excited about. And you know what? God's done it here before. It's happened in Massachusetts before. 300 years ago, there's a man came preaching here. His name was George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a, a world-famous evangelist. Uh, some of you heard of John Wesley. He was a contemporary of George Whitfield. And we, we know a lot about Wesley, but at the time, uh, Wesley definitely was in Whitfield's shadow. Whitfield was the man at the time. And he came to Boston. He came on a preaching tour here in the fall of 1740. And... Uh, I mean, it had a profound impact on the people of Boston. In fact, when he left, he had one final sermon on Boston Commons. 20,000 people, which at the time was pretty much everybody in Boston, <laughs> came to the Commons to hear him preach. And he preached, and people were cut to the heart, and they were weeping. And as he left, they, you know, it was, don't leave. We need more of what God is doing. Just to give you a little picture of what it was like, if you look on the back of the sermon notes, Here's two little snippets of life in Boston in 1740 as, as Whitfield was ministering. It says at the top quote, And now was such a time as we never knew. The Reverend Mr. Cooper was wont to say that more came to him in one week in deep concern about their souls than in the whole 24 years of his preceding ministry. I can also say that the same, the same as to numbers who repaired to me. Mr. Cooper has had about 600 persons in three months. And Mr. Webb said, in the same space, above a thousand. So out of the woodwork, people are, you know, knocking on the minister's doors. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm a Christian. Where there had been nominalism and complacency before, there were people crying out for God. And it wasn't just a flash in the pan thing. It wasn't just like Whitfield was some amazing guy, and then when he left, everyone went back to business as usual. Look at the next quote. This wondrous movement continued a year and a half after Whitfield's departure from Boston. Thirty religious societies were instituted in this city. Ministers, besides attending to their usual work, preached in private houses almost every night. Chapels were always crowded. Quote, the very face of the town seems to be strangely altered. Even the boys in the streets left their usual rudeness, and taverns were found empty of all but lodgers. Could you imagine? Headline, Lansdowne Street, vacant. <laughs> Clubs closed. Thursday night drinking and watching TV, you know, no longer existent. Uh, you know, Kenmore Square and Harvard Square, bars empty. 
You know, what? Could you imagine those? That's what was happening back then. Imagine if that was the headlines today. Wrote Dr. Coleman in a letter to Dr. Isaac Watts, Our Sabbaths are joyous, our churches increase, and our ministers have new life and spirit in their work. God can pour out His Spirit on Massachusetts again, because He did it before. Our God can do anything. And so rather than writing off people, writing off states, writing off ourselves, let us instead pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's the praise team to come and just lead us in one final song. You guys have been very patient. If you could all just stand and uh, we're going to sing one final song. And let's not just sing a song. Let's make this kind of our corporate prayer in response to the text that we've just studied. Let's sing together our desire to see the Lord's Spirit poured out like a river.
Hey, thank you for your uh, thank you for your patience and thank you for worshiping with us today. There's coffee downstairs and uh, uh, there's uh, a visitors table if you're new to the church or would like some information on the church. I'm going to be here in the front and uh, our prayer team is here. Linda and Pat are here. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe you want to come to Christ and ask Him to come into your life. Come on up. Let's pray about that. And now, Lord, I pray that you would bless this people and that you would send them out full of the Holy Spirit. And God, may you continue to pour out your Spirit on this land. Pour out your Spirit on me, Lord. I need it as much as anyone else. I need your work in my life as much as anyone else, as much as Massachusetts does. So, Lord, work in me first. Work in us and then work in our land. We desire to see your power displayed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.